Let's, uh, let's pray. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Lord, these were the words that Job said to you following this terrible tragedy. We pray this evening as we look at your word together, that you would so put a strong faith in us that whatever might come our way, whatever suffering we might experience, we still would be able to say those words and say them from our hearts that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the question, what is suffering? And um, where did it come from? And the, uh, the, the definition that came up there is that suffering is a soul's response to experiencing evil. It's a deep pain telling us that something's wrong. Uh, where does it come from? As, as Grant was uh, uh, explaining last week, well, all suffering in one way or another comes from the sinfulness of man. It can be traced back to, to the fall. But the question we're looking at this week is a, is a difficult one, isn't it? Because if God is good, if he is all-powerful, then why doesn't he do something about suffering? The fact that there is suffering in this world must mean, so the argument goes, that either God is not good and allows suffering, or he's not powerful and not able to do anything about it. In the Grenfell Tower fire a few weeks ago, we witnessed a terrible tragedy. How do you say that God is good to the mother of this child here, five-year-old Isaac Shawa, who got separated in the smoke and died in the blaze? Or how would you say to the girlfriend of 45-year-old Frenchman Xavier Thomas, who happened to be on London Bridge at the time a terrorist drove a van onto the pavement, forcing him over the bridge into the River Thames? His body was only found a few days later three miles downstream. If God is good and powerful, how do we try and explain these tragedies? And they're tragedies that many more people experience um, every day in different parts of the world, as well as the suffering that we experience in our own lives. That may be the death of someone close to us. It may be being diagnosed with a terminal illness. It may be being let down or betrayed by someone who we, we trusted. Well, how do people try and and, and reconcile these these things? Let's have a look, first of all, at potential solutions that people have tried to come up with to address the the problem. The first of those is that that God is not all-powerful. It's an approach that many people have taken, including uh, Rabbi Kushner, who believes that God is not responsible for our suffering, but he's a friend who stands with us in our suffering. In his view, God is someone to whom we can relate as someone who shares our experience of suffering, but he's equally powerless. And prayer, therefore, doesn't change anything. It just changes us. Our faith also makes us more sensitive to uh, other people's pain and gives us the strength to get through suffering. Now, on the one hand, that's true, isn't it? Um, God is with us in our suffering. Prayer does make us sensitive to other people's uh, problems. It does give us strength. But what good is a God who is powerless, who can only sympathize? 
How different is he really from a good friend? And we don't pray to, to good friends. When Jesus prayed to God in his agony, it wasn't to a powerless father. It was someone he knew had the power to change things, but chose not to because that was part of his, his bigger plan. Another way to try and solve the problem is to deny God's goodness. But throughout the Bible, there are references to God's goodness. There are demonstrations of God's goodness. Uh, Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When we look at the life of Jesus, even those who wouldn't accept that he is the son of God would still accept that he was a good man. To say that God is not good is somehow to make ourselves the judges of goodness. And we know that we're not perfectly good, so goodness becomes pretty meaningless. Another option is to deny that uh, suffering is real. It's just an illusion. It's just a mental attitude. And of course, there is a mental component to um, suffering, but to say that it is just an issue of mental attitude uh, denies the reality of evil. Buddhists will go even further and claim that to get rid of suffering, you just get rid of, of desire. But of course, where you end up with that view is that you end up with a view, as Buddhists have, that um, God is not real. God is not real. The problem with that view is that why then do we question the meaning of suffering? The very fact that we ask the question assumes that, that God exists. If there is no God, then this life has no meaning. And, and everything is a matter of chance anyway. So, so why ask the question? We can't even say suffering is evil because where does our understanding of evil come from? So that if none of these solutions really works, well, where do we go from here? Well, let's turn to the Bible. Let's turn to the passage which Terry read for us from, from Job. Because this does give us a bit of an insight into God's sovereignty and suffering. What do we know about Job? Well, um, we're told where he lived in the land of Uz, not to be confused with the land of Oz and, and wizards. Um, we're not told where Uz is, and um, we're not told when he lived there, presumably because these details are unimportant to the story. But Job was a real person. We know that from references to him in the book of uh, Ezekiel. Um, he was mentioned alongside Noah and Daniel. In the New Testament, in James, he makes reference to Job's perseverance. And yet the reason why we're not told more about him is presumably because this story has universal application to each one of us. Whoever Job was, it could also be us. So what do we know about Job? Well, we know that, first of all, he's godly. He's described in verse 1 as being blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. We know he's very prosperous. He has a large family. He has uh, much livestock, many servants. Um, in short, we're told he is the greatest man among all the people of the East. He is the, the Bill Gates of today, if you like. He's also a man who's very much concerned for his family. His children, we're told, would feast regularly. Um, I don't think it's meant to indicate wilder parties or anything. They just knew how to enjoy themselves. But Job, being a godly man, would offer a sacrifice for them just in case they ha had sinned. 
So it's a great idyllic picture, isn't it? A good guy living a good life, uh, full of blessings, just how it should be in a perfect world. And then tragedy strikes. In one day, he loses everything. His wealth is wiped out. His staff are murdered. His children are all killed in a tragic accident. Who is responsible for this tragedy? That's the sort of question we'll be asked today, isn't it? Who was responsible for that? Who can we blame? Well, the person who was responsible is Satan. And what this episode reveals is Satan's considerable power. He has wicked men under his control. What makes the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans steal the livestock and kill the servants without any scruples? If it isn't Satan. The weather is under his control because the the sheep were killed by lightning. A mighty wind killed Job's children as the house collapsed on them. Disease is under his control. If you look over the page in chapter 2, verse 7, there we're told that Satan afflicted Job with painful sores. And he also gets Job's wife to try and undermine Job's trust in God. In the New Testament, we see Satan's power as well. Satan used Peter to try and tempt Jesus not to go through with the crucifixion. Do you remember Matthew 16, where Jesus explains to the disciples what he'd come to do? And Peter says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He knew who was inciting Peter to tempt him not to go through with it. When Jesus, Judas went to betray Jesus, we're told that Satan entered Judas. And in 1 John 5, we're told that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The atrocities that go on today and that have gone on in the past, we think back to Auschwitz or Rwanda or Cambodia or many other terrible atrocities, are easier to understand if we acknowledge that Satan is a real person at work within people. And as we read in Ephesians, we're told our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that's why we've done a series recently on spiritual battles, because it was recognizing that Satan is powerful. He's dangerous, and we need to be on our our guard against him. So where does God come into all of this then? If, um, If God is sovereign, where does he come into all of this? Well, what we see from this passage is that although Satan is powerful, ultimate control is with God. The devil is merely a created being. He's not God. He's not equal to God. He's not on a par with God. It's God, actually, if you look at verse 8 of chapter 1, who brought um, Job to Satan's attention in the first place. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. Now, if Job knew this, he'd probably be going to God, shh, don't draw any attention to me. Let me stay under the radar. Let me live my life in peace and quiet. And having been told about Job, Satan replies very skeptically by saying in verse 10, 9 and 10, does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not uh, put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So what does God do now? Does he say, oh, I wish I'd kept my mouth shut? No, he gives permission to Satan to strike Job. But within very strict limits, have a look at verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. You can touch his belongings, uh, even the people who are dear to him. But you cannot allow any physical harm to come to him personally. God knows the outcome of this test because he knows all things. He knows he would not allow Satan to test Job without giving Job sufficient strength to resist. And note that Satan doesn't exceed the limits God has given him. In the first instance, he doesn't touch Job himself. He has to go back to God and ask him for permission uh, for further suffering. And again, over the page in chapter 2, verse 6, God gives him authority to do this, but again with another limit. He says, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now again, Job is unaware of this conversation that's going on, but he knows that God ultimately is in control of his life. And any tragedy that happens to him has been allowed by God. And so his response to the tragedy in verse 20 of chapter 1 is that he got up, he tore his robe and shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He knows that everything he had came from God in the first place. And so God has the right to take that away if he so chooses. And much of the time, God has a hedge around us to, to keep Satan away. And we don't know just how much evil and suffering he protects us from. Probably far more than we can ever imagine. But at times, he chooses to remove that hedge now, the sovereignty of God is not something that we just see in Job. It's, it's borne out in the rest of, of Scripture. In Ephesians 1, it says, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In Isaiah 46, it says, My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. God's sovereignty is seen in the fact that people pray to him. People trust that he will answer their prayers, that he can change things. Unless God has sovereign control over suffering, it's pointless to pray about it. But in the Bible, God's people do pray. Because they know that he has the power to remove evil if he so chooses. In 2 Samuel 12, we read, remember about King David praying for his sick child. Although in this case, the child's sickness was as a result of David's sin. David still knew that God might have mercy and he might heal him. He knew that God could heal him if he chose to. It's right to pray for healing. The Bible tells us that. Disease and sickness are works of the devil. 
In John 3, 1 John 3, we're told the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. God is more powerful than Satan. And if God chooses to remove the hedge that surrounds us, he does so for some good reason. And the hard thing for us is to accept that good reason, even when we can't see it. And that is difficult, isn't it? It's to accept God's wisdom. And that's true for us. It's true for the biblical writers. Many of them couldn't understand why God would allow suffering to continue. It made them question God. Job doubted God's justice. Jeremiah complained that God had had deceived him. The psalmists wondered if God had abandoned them. But they never questioned his power. They don't try and tone down his sovereignty to, to, to make him nice. They understand that he's in control even if they don't like what happens. So Isaiah tells Israel that the Lord says, I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So if we accept that God is in control of everything, we have to accept that he's behind suffering as well as blessing. But in that case, how do we understand God's goodness in the face of suffering? How, how can evil be part of his plans? How can that serve any good purpose? Let's come on to God's goodness and suffering. This is the real test, isn't it? To what extent do we trust God that he's not only in control but he's still wise, he's still good. When Satan afflicts uh, Job with a horrible illness which causes him to sit among the ashes scraping his sores with a piece of broken pottery, Job's wife starts to lose her faith in God's goodness. And she asks him, have a look down in verse 9 of chapter 2, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. But how does Job reply in verse 10? He says, he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? We are quick to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But sometimes we're not so quick to ask the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're, we're all bad, we're all sinful, and yet God still chooses us to, to bless us with many good things. How does Job respond to his suffering? Will he, he remain faithful to God? And, or will he curse God, as his wife tells him he should? How should we respond to God when, when bad things happen to us and we just don't understand why? These are real questions that Job and his friends grapple with throughout this book. And there's nothing wrong in, in asking such questions. But one of the main lessons that we learn from Job is that whilst we may not always know why we suffer... We don't understand some of the mysteries of God. We can at least learn how to respond to it. We can't understand fully the mind of God. We are not God. But there are a few things we can learn from the Bible. Just three things to look at briefly. The first of those is that at least some suffering has a good result that we can later identify. And we see that in the Bible, don't we? Uh, take the, the story of Joseph. Sold into slavery experienced great injustice in Egypt, in prison for many years, languishing 
in a rotten jail. But he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And later on, as his brothers come, asking him for food, not knowing what he might say to them, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I'm sure we would all have stories to tell of tough times we did go through. Uh, We called out to God for them to come to an end. We couldn't understand why God would let us go through it. But as we looked back, we could see that it was for our good. And we'll come on next week to why does God allow his people to suffer? What does he teach us through suffering? But another thing we do read again in the Bible is that God is not unmoved by suffering. Even though God does allow suffering to occur for his own reasons, he's not unmoved by it. It's a bit like when our Ben was younger, a young, young child. If anyone had come into our house on one particular day, what they would have found was one of his parents holding him down and the other one squirting some disgusting-looking liquid down his throat while he, while he screamed. What are they doing to this poor child? What they wouldn't have known was that he was very ill and, re- and refused to take his medicine. Uh, and his parents hated seeing him in that d- distress. But um, what they were doing was for his best, for his good. David writes in Psalm 56, Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? God keeps a record of his children's sufferings, even when he has ordained them. Just after Jesus curses the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy and wickedness, he weeps for Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Look, Your house is left to you desolate. A terrible judgment was going to fall on Jerusalem, but even though it was God who determined it, it grieved him terribly. But finally, and most importantly, God himself has suffered for our sakes. In 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So the language of Isaiah 53 and Peter is applying it to Christ's work on the cross for us. It's not only us who have suffered. God has suffered and he chose to suffer. And why? Because we could be healed. God doesn't just sympathize from a distance. He doesn't just stay in heaven and look down at the world world and see all that's going on. He, He comes into our world. He does something about it. He takes on human suffering. There's no need for him to do that. He could have just washed his hands of planet Earth and human beings. But instead he decided that his son should suffer. Why would he subject his son to suffering rather than the people who deserved suffering in the first place? Why did Jesus decide willingly to suffer? Why did he say, I lay down my life for the sheep? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my accord. What was the purpose 
of all that. To have any understanding of suffering, we have to come back ultimately to the cross. Because in that terrible act of suffering, Jesus achieved everything of any significance for us. All the goodness that we experience in our life, the fact that he delivered us from God's anger, he did it through suffering. The fact that he bore our sins, he purchased our forgiveness, he did that through his suffering. That he made us righteous, he did that through his suffering. He defeated death, he defeated Satan through his suffering. He achieved perfect final healing for his people by suffering. He secured eternal access to God the Father and fellowship with him through suffering. And if God has done all that for us through suffering, then who ultimately are we to question his wisdom? J.S. Bach knew what suffering was. He experienced the death of 11 of his children. And that personal experience no doubt helped him as he wrote the music for the Passions and expressed the suffering of Christ in that. We can only possibly make sense of our suffering by turning to the one who suffered the death of his own son. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Let's pray. Father God, we are all here this this evening in a different place. Some may have experienced suffering in the past. Some may be going through it right now. Some may have yet to experience it. And Lord, we will struggle with it. We will find it hard. We may question you and your goodness. We may question your power. Lord, in all these things, help us to come back to the cross. Help us to look at your son hanging on the cross. Help us to think about the suffering you went through as you sent him to die for our sakes. And we thank you for his willingness to go through with that. We thank you that through his suffering, we have been healed. And we thank you for the glorious eternity we have to look forward to. May we rejoice in that and may we trust in you, Lord, for all of this life entails. In Jesus' name, amen.